Hey everyone, welcome back to episode number 60 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. It's technically episode 210 if you count the old ones, the old format with Dean, but um, great to have you all here. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I have Nick Tuminello back. Nick, his uh, first appearance on the new format, he's been a guest on the previous one a couple of times. And I'll start off with this. It was a conversation in 2018 at dinner with Nick at our friend Tim's conference in Spokane that was one of the biggest pushes in my career. And I've told Nick about this before. Um, and I've been reading Nick's work for T Nation for my entire career. I've been following Nick's stuff. I've got two of his books on my shelf. Uh, we just, before we got on air, I was showing Nick uh, the new bookshelves. And if you guys already don't already know who Nick is, well, Nick's a very de decorated uh, educator, teacher in the industry space. He's certainly a trainer, um, someone that I've seen present in person a few times and whose work I've been reading for a long time. So it's great to have you back, my friend. I oh, appreciate it, man. And I'm just, I told you your best work then. I told you your best work's ahead of you. And I'm excited to see what you had in store. And you've continued to write your own story. So I could not be more more proud of you, brother. Well, I appreciate it. And like I said, you know, it was a, it was a good conversation. It was a little bit of a nudge. It was a couple more along the way with other people. And it got me writing. And a lot of stuff's come out of that. But this is about you and not me. So you had something you wanted to talk about. And I'll introduce it this way. And I like to think of it as well, anyone who's in the industry notices that our industry is full of tribalism. People will form tribes and polarizing sides over virtually anything. Um, whether we're talking nutrition ideology uh, on a big scale or little corners, things like biomechanics and pain science, which is kind of where we're going to go with this. And we definitely get pendulum swings. We get extremes. And I think the best example is, you know, around the use of scary language, God forbid someone moves slightly the wrong way. And we have fitness accounts out there who make it sound like if you do something like that, then a joint will explode, something terrible is going to happen. And then we have what's seemingly a tribe around the other side that's ostensibly evidence-based that basically saying that there's no relationship between form and injury risk whatsoever, which I kind of, you know, I think intuitively based on our experience, I, I have a little trouble swallowing that one too. Mm -hmm. But Nick, I'll let you dive into this one. I'm open the floor to what you think about sometimes these false dichotomies that exist in our industry, where the tribalism comes from, and your thoughts around, you know, the use of language uh, that talks about pain, dysfunction, and injury. Well, nothing has been nothing has been worse for um, highlighting the flaws of experts than and and research than putting researchers and experts in the public eye and giving them Instagrams and Facebooks and letting them debate each other and seeing they still talk like five-year-olds and they're dogmatic and they, you know, they contradict each other and everything else. Um, but that being said, everybody, me, let me just preface it by saying this. Um, I think everybody's heart's in the right place. Uh, rarely do I ever believe, and I really wouldn't accuse anybody without real evidence that they're genuinely doing things for attention or just to sell products or whatever. Now I sell products. So do I post things to promote my products? Yes. I have to pay my bills. Right. So, but what I mean is like not to be grossly dishonest for the sake of it, because there's just not enough money in it. Right. There's just, you know, you do that for millions and millions of dollars and you're most of people are not making that from talking about, you know, bicep curls or a certain way to do it or, or, or whatever. So I think everybody's doing what the best, what they know how and doing it among the current sphere, which is you do need to get things to get attention. You do need to say things that stand out. You do need to be different. 
You do need to be effective, which I just mean you need to be straightforward and, and simple. And by the way, you, you need to get people talking about you. Otherwise, it doesn't get their attention. Um, if that's the game, again, don't hate the player, hate the game. So I've certainly tweaked a lot of the ways that I do things um, to, to, to play the game because I play to win, whether people, whether people like, like it or not. Now, with all that being said, it's very much like politics, right? Where we look at people on both sides and we go, well, maybe you have some decent points there, but I think you're full of crap over here. And the other side, I think you have some decent points, but I think you're full of crap over here. And most of us, the majority of us are somewhere in between, but it just seems like the people who are supposedly representing us, although they're not, they're representing themselves, at least in politics and in fitness seems to be that they're just so far apart. So with that being said, if we can all relate to that, um, I like to call myself, I'm like the stone cold Steve Austin of fitness, right? I play on no teams. I'm on team client and I'm on team Nick, right? So um, I have no problem with taking an objective approach on things and um, looking at pros and cons of everything. So if we're going to specifically talk about injury risk or what is dangerous to clients, assessments, corrections, all things safe training, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very, on one side, you have the pain science again, and I'm, I'm simplifying, but that's fine. And you know, the, it's, they're very good at looking at research. Um, that's a strong point of them, but they're horrible at, um, providing practical applications, right? I have some really good, by the way, I said this, I was, I sat on the panel at the 2000, and all these events blend together for me right now, two, let's call it 2018 Pain Science Summit in San Diego. Maybe it was 2017, somewhere around there. And I said this to the crowd of 200 people at the Pain Science Summit, right? So I'm not saying anything that I don't, you know, until they provide practical and more direct applications, it's never really going to stick, right? Um, all it really seems to be is they're the ones out there saying no to everything, and they're really good with research, but I still don't even know what any of them do. I don't know what any of my pain science friends who support. I don't even know what any of them do. I have no clue. Right. So that's, that's a flaw. On the other side of things, we have some people who are very dogmatic. They provide direct things to do, but they tend to be extremely dogmatic. And if you're a beginner trainer, I mean like a real beginner, like you're just getting your first few clients you know, maybe you'll like that. I'm not saying it's the best thing, but maybe you'll like that because it gives you some security in an insecure environment. You're not sure what to do. So you figure, well, someone smarter than me tells me what to do. Um, maybe I'm a little less dangerous, but to anybody that's got a, even a little bit of experience in their own thoughts, we tend to feel like that talks down to us. We tend to feel like, well, you're telling me what to do, or you're basically saying you should do your thinking for me, or I have some reasons why or I have some scenarios that maybe not apply to that and you're oversimplifying things. The problem is, or actually it's not a problem. The good thing is there's a lot of space in the middle of those two things. <laughs> and I just pick up all that, all that space. So I, I joke and I say that my career has been built off of, um, you know, my own hard work, but also off of uh, other people's incompetence. So there's been a lot of incompetence, you know, on those two areas that leave in the middle for someone like me to say, very simple, hey, it's important to look at some research uh, and understand that's a part of it, right? 
However, we need to under, also understand that there are different interpretations of the research. Therefore, I'm not going to come off as if the way I'm interpreting the research is the truth. And we see this with the research type, right? You have one person that writes something that's all well-referenced. And uh, now again, just because it's referenced doesn't mean they're not cherry picking, but who decides who's cherry picking, right? People who disagree, each one of them calls the other one cherry picking. So at the end of the day, it comes down to whether you use research, your interpretation. So with that being said, being a little more intellectually honest with not just the research that you use, but how you convey the research and just say, here's what has brought me to the current beliefs and practices that I have. Here's how I'm interpreting the research. And that's being very respectful to the audience and treating them like an adult. But when you say, no, this is the truth or this is bullshit, then you're going you're gonna to get a lot of people's backs up and a lot of people are going to check you and go, you know, you're acting like you're the thought police and you're smarter than everybody. So I'm going to show you that you're not so smart. I'm going to highlight your flaws. Aside from the fact that the pain science people don't teach us anything, they genuinely don't. They just say no. My biggest criticism with them, I know I'm sort of doing a rant here, is that <laughs> they say that this is my biggest issue is, and I'm an, I'm an educator, so I, I know this. And I'm also, I've owned gyms, so I've had trainers work for me and I know what I have to deal with with employees to make them less dangerous. Um, anytime you say like, this is no good, right? So let's say you, you ding the FMS. Of course, I'm not, you know, I've got much respect for Greg Cook and all the things that, and Lee Burton and all the rest of the people that they provided. Does that FMS leave a lot to be desired? Absolutely. But great. I'd rather have someone throw their hat in the ring and we build off of that than do nothing. So I have great respect for all the things that they've done. Um, that being said, when someone says, in pain science says, all oh, that's nonsense or whatever. Maybe they're even a little diplomatic about it, but that's basically the takeaway. Well, then the other person will say, well, what do you tell me I should do instead? And then the pain science person will say, well, just because, you know, your thing is no good doesn't mean I have to provide something better. Just like I don't have to, you know, provide a different Santa Claus, something else aside from Santa Claus, if I tell you Santa doesn't exist, right? That is true. But what am I going to do to get my kids? I don't have kids, but what am I going to do to get my kids excited for Christmas? See, it still solves a problem that they're not, they're not addressing. So what they don't realize, the pain science folks, is whenever they say they don't like something or something is BS or whatever, they're actually causing a comparison as opposed to what? What else should I be doing? And if you don't provide that, then that person who they're trying to help because they think they better use their time doing some other intervention, but without saying what that would be, that person is just going to go right back to doing what they are comfortable with because psychology tells us that we're more scared of losing something that we know we already have than gaining something that we don't already have. And if all you're doing is shooting down what people are trying to do, especially we have vulnerable populations that are one of the biggest battles is just getting them consistent in a gym setting then Correct. it's going to create a culture based around fear, fear of injury or fear of any movement. And fear of movement will put people on the couch, which is probably long-term the most detrimental thing they could possibly face. There is always going to be some risk of injury if you're active, but you can pretty much guarantee that your quality of life, long-term quality of life is going to decline and you're at greater risk of any number of diseases and disorders if you're completely inactive, even if you are bubble wrapped on the couch. Right. So now what you're, you're providing a great counter argument to the other side of things, which is the 
postural structural biomechanics, you know, if you don't move perfectly or don't add fitness to, to dysfunction, well, because so many of us have so many so-called dysfunctions, if all you see is dysfunctions because the posture is no good because it doesn't fit the plumb line and they don't score well on certain tests or their alignment's no good or they're unfamiliar with certain moves, so they're not as good at that. Well, all you, if all you see is dysfunction, then you're never going to actually create fitness. So that's the other side of things. So yes, they're providing something practical, but they're actually causing us trainers, and it's our, our trainers. A lot of this doesn't come from the educators. A lot of it's the interpretation of the followers, right? I've had that happen to me. So I'm not saying if somebody says, oh, well, Ray Cook doesn't say that, or Mike Reinhold, or whoever, you know, your, your person is. I'm not saying they're exactly saying that. What I'm saying is, in practice, that's how the common things that seem to happen, the interpretations among trainers. So you're right, is... We, get, we take these assessment courses and they give us direct things to do. If you see this, you know, do this corrective or this needs to be uh, improved upon. This needs to be mobilized. This needs to be fascialized. This needs to be neuro this. You got it. Great. It's a very, if this do that, we like that. It's simple, direct. However, us trainers are become very scared to actually make people fitter because we think they're just a series of problems and that all we're going to do is reinforce these Dysfunct these so-called dysfunctions and not enough actual training gets done to get people improve metabolism, to help them enjoy a, 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 a and build a love for movement, to actually reinstate any sort of activity into their life that's going to cause any sort of change, could cause buy-in or whatever. So there, the biomechanics stuff does a good job of giving us some direction and looking at some details because the details do matter. And the, the pain science people help us to question some of these things and be a little more honest with what we're saying and not be so caught up in trying to, this is, this is I'm going to bring it all around here. Trainers lost our way with the assessment stuff when we started making the sessions about the assessment and not about fitness. And we started talking everything about patterns, right? So Andrew comes to me and Andrew says, even though he's got big biceps, I want to get bigger biceps and a little nicer butt and run a little faster. And I basically shake your hand and I take your first check or your first PayPal payment or however you're paying me in an agreement that I'm listening to you. But then I start looking at you in movement patterns. Well, he doesn't rotate well. He, he has tight calves. And next thing you know, you haven't sniffed a bicep curl in six weeks. And you might not even, you might never sniff one because I'm thinking about doing something to you making you this fitting to this movement narrative to you when you never came to me for this, right? You came to me about fitness and about hypertrophy. So uh, we, we still have to make that number one. The client's goals are number one. A couple of things that I'll throw in there. Um, you mentioned kind of the biomechanics stuff and I'm, I'm noticing tribalism around the biomechanics community. So it's becoming more popular now to see uh, biomechanics courses. So you got uh, Coach Kasim on N1, and I was just at a, a prescript with uh, Jordan Shallow this weekend. So I was hanging around with my friend, uh, the Muscle Doc. And then I know Matt Domney and uh, Kyle Dobbs have a really great one as well. So these are kind of three of the ones that are out there. And I, in, in my experience, exposure to all of them, it's great stuff. It's, it's fantastic. I think there's good education. I think there's nuance. What I've noticed is, as you said, it's the followers. It's the people who are kind of be grabbing on, ooh, this is a tribe that I now attach my identity to, and they're running with this stuff. 
they're the people I kind of would say to everyone else, be very careful about those people and their interpretations. I would go to the source. If you really want to dive into this stuff, I would go and plug into one of these three different uh, certifications or biomechanics courses and follow that the the creators directly so that we, you're getting their interpretation because there's there's some different interpretations of some things and disagreement between them but they tend to be fairly respectful i find that the the, the social media battling comes from the next tier of people who are have identified as being part of that tribe and then now are sharing their own interpretation of the stuff a second thought when it comes to following the industry leaders and experts, you know, where, whether it's evidence-based community or whatever, I tend to look for the greater community that don't always agree on everything, but for the most part, when they agree or interpret something fairly similarly, that's a pretty good barometer for me that what they've grabbed onto is quite good. Be it people like Dr. Sam Spinelli or Dr. Mike Isertel or Menu Henselman's, you know, it's Brett Contreras, it's Greg Knuckles, and there's a long list of those people. You also sit in, in that category as well. And if you guys are all, for the most part, on the same page when it comes to, you know, fairly significant topics in the fitness industry or fairly nuanced ones, I know it's probably pretty safe territory. And if there's disagreement, well, then it gets interesting. You kind of have to go into it a little bit into the weeds if you care to. But at the same time, even as a coach, I'm not advocating just pick a stupid idea and double down on it. But at a certain point, if something's a little contentious, you have to follow the evidence to the best of your ability and you have to take it to your clients and do what seems to keep your clients safe, progresses them, makes for them to have a great experience. Because at the end of the day, this is about the client getting results and having a great experience. It's not about being right. It's not about scoring ideological wins on social media. It is entirely about that client coming back every day, feeling good. Absolutely. So what's what's interesting, too, is what a lot of times we don't think about when we're interpreting these things or seeing these debates or, or part of them, whatever. Um, or when you're someone like, you know, me, who's who has their own stuff um, is that. Well, let me let me address this first. Sometimes when we criticize something, let's say someone who's more research oriented. Um, they will bring up something and say, yeah, research calls us into question, right? Now, I'm, I'm probably being way more diplomatic about it than the way some people are. They call it, hey, this is bullshit or whatever. <laughs> but what we don't realize, and it may be, I'm not even, I'm, let's, let's grant that the research itself does say what they're saying it says. Um, that being said, is that there's always things that can change. So we do know, you know, but let's say it is slightly questionable. But there are other so solutions and things that come from things that might not in the research be as valid. For example, it gets people communicating among coaches. If you're in a staff among a pro team, right? You're all, it gives you a common language. It gives you all something to be consistent with. And when you have that energy, it creates more buy-in and that buy-in comes carry. They see the, the players see that and the players then buy in. And we know that, probably more than half of why a treatment works is belief in the treatment, right? So what I'm saying is that there are other human elements that sometimes when you solve one problem, oh, well, this has more research. Yes, but is it as practical? Does it get people as, as excited? Do they want to do it? Is it as simple for them, right? It's easy for me to give a little shoulder protocol and call it sh the shoulder injury prevention protocol, I can get all my athletes and clients to do that like crazy. 
But if I tell them, oh, well, it's very complex. It's in your brain and nothing has to do with your scapula. Who knows? I don't even know. I don't know what to do. Just do some stuff. People aren't going to do anything at all because they're like, well, what? I mean, do you ever go to a doctor and the doctor says, I don't really know what's going on with you. You are not going to be happy with that diagnosis. Could be this, could be that. And, and then you get mad at the doctor. The doctor says, well, hey, look, I'm just being as intellectually honest as possible. Your ass is going to go to another doctor until you find that doctor says, oh, I've seen this before. Here, here's your prescription. Take two of these every day for the next two weeks. Because that's what people want. So is it, it's, better than, it's better than nothing. So there are trade-offs. And that's really what I'm coming down to. Everything is a trade-off. Maybe something is a little less scientific, but it's, people are going to do it. Right. And, and so not saying they're, they're always contradictory, but sometimes we don't consider from the other end of the spectrum, because if you're not training people, if you're more in the academic realm, you don't think about things like that. On the flip side, if you are the head chef at your gym and everybody else is your underling, nobody questions you. So you're used to saying things with supreme confidence and authority and having nobody challenge you or challenge you on very little things. And then you go to a conference or you go online and there's a hundred chefs, right? And they, they don't care. They're not buying what you're selling because they're not your employees. They don't have to be nice to you. And then you have to sometimes realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm in my own little bubble here. So we, a lot of times look as if we're still, we don't look at it from the perspective of where the person is, who's their target audience, right? Ben, real quick, Ben Bruno and I, you know, we, we joked about, cause I'm a, you know, I'm not against burpees, right? And he's always says he hates burpees, right? Right. I'm good friends with, I'm good friends with Ben. We, he and I talk on the phone, you know, regularly, right? So we laugh about that, you know? So, but here's a little conversation that he and I had. He goes, he goes, Nick, if I'm there training somebody and I know and I can watch, he goes, I like your gorilla burpee. I could use it. He goes, the reason why he goes, my audience sees I train Chelsea Handler and they're predominantly women, you know, over 40 or whatever. He goes and the average one, they're going to do that wrong. And they're training at home. He goes, so that because they're more likely to do this poorly, I just say, don't do it. In that case, guess what I would say? The same thing. In fact, I would, if that's my target audience, but yep. we don't, consider those things we don't consider our lens or that the lens that someone else is coming from um and that's why a lot of times we talk past one another and what it, what does that do when we don't get understood it pushes us further further apart it's almost like you collide and you bounce even further apart like the example with the burpee my you know I, I tend to be, you know, anti-burpee uh, from a basic standpoint as well. So I'm probably a little bit more like Ben, but like you said, you guys have share more in common than the argument makes it seem like, but you will encounter certain situations. I work with police applicants and other applicants to different uh, paramilitary, military stuff. And sometimes in the <clears throat> situations where they're being trained or their physicals, there can be burpees. If you're dealing with, maybe it's CrossFit athletes or, or something Spartan, uh, where burpees are a thing, the athletes do need to actually be skilled at doing them. So you better be able to coach them to do them with proficiency to reduce the likelihood of any potential injury risk, which kind of circles back to the original conversation because we don't want to create a lot of fear around it. So there are a lot of situations where someone actually does need to have the skill. And if you stand on your ideological 
um, soapbox and say, no, burpees are bad. I'm not doing them. And you're working with people who ultimately are going into some other environment and forced to do them. Mm-hmm. You're better off making sure that that person actually knows how to perform one reasonably well. And right. I think it circles back to what we were talking about earlier about some of the language that some people use to create fear around exercise. I think it's a really nuanced sweet spot in the middle where we don't want people being afraid to do everything. But I also don't think, I don't buy into this narrative that uh, there's no, the evidence supposedly supports that there's no relationship between, you know, what exercise form looks like and the potential injury risk. I think any coach who's done a substantial number of hours in a gym knows that's a little flawed. But again, I don't want to use the language of the client in front of me to make them fearful that something bad could happen. I'm always trying to coach really good form. I think Tony Gentilcore is really good at this. He understands and he talks about how there, there comes a threshold where you can look at it and go, it's good enough, right? It's not about being a technical perfectionist and, and yeah. irritating the client or making the experience so frustrating because they're doing pretty good, but you're just determined to make sure it's masterful or else it's not good enough. I think you've probably had this experience, Lord knows I have, where a client's doing really well, like the form is really good. So I can then take the opportunity and say to them, you know what, this is great. There's an opportunity where we actually really create mastery here and make them feel good about it. If anything, we can get away from the lens of, hey, we need to fix this form because you're probably going to get hurt to where I want to actually make sure this form is optimal so that you get the best training effect out of it. We're targeting the right muscles and you're you're achieving the results you're looking for. A lot of the time, it's simply the type of language we use both with the client in front of us and with our media, the people that we're talking to. And if we can keep that language away from fear-based stuff, I think we're probably doing well. Yeah, you keep it away from fear-based stuff, which is a good pain science argument, but also I would say keep it away from dogma, which you know is is a little bit of the issue with the biomechanic type stuff. Um, you know, it's the sort of they always do this or whatever. And um, again, it would it work? Sure, but the question is, is that it's is it's it's not magic, you know? And that's where you start falling for other other things. So, yeah, man. I mean, it's. <laughs> I always say some people come to education to, to learn others come to be led. Some people are just sort of built for that. But um, I also think that sometimes is a part of the process where whatever you learn, you're really excited about becomes the most important thing. And then sometimes you just kind of break out of it because you have the experiences, you do it for a while and you thought this was going to be the solution. And then after you tried train a bunch of clients, a few people did better, other people didn't. And after a while you say, Oh, maybe, I am missing something here. So I think sometimes you have to realize that that's where people are in their journey and um, you got to let them figure it out. It's no different than when you're dating a girl and everybody else is telling you she's no good for you, but you're not ready to see it, you know, until, until eventually happens a year later, two years later, whatever. And then you go, Oh, I just, I needed to see it for myself. Uh, You you mentioned earlier functional movement screens and I have been at presentations that you've done that kind of, Got gotten into the guts of how you know, functional movement screen, and there was good research to support this, doesn't in any way accurately predict the likelihood of injury. We've kind of now, even it's common even, knowledge now, yeah. yeah it, even the, the people behind it have really backed off of that claim. But so you've got a new program, and I want to bring you on to talk about it as well. Uh, so I think you call it the movement performance assessment. So I'll open it up to what your what your program does, what your thoughts on our assessments, because you also said 
early on that you, people get caught up in assessments and they get away from the actual fitness. And, and I'm a big believer in, you know, as I go, I'm really assessing a lot of things as I get people moving because I like to make sure we don't have an hour sit down and then oh, the next hour they come in and they see you as just an assessment with no fitness component. And then finally, maybe by week number two, the third time they're in front of you, then they've done a quote bicep curl. People are excited at the very start and they want to get moving fairly quickly. So I try to be very efficient with the assessment process. So tell me more about the, the program. And I'll also let you then wander into this. Do you have any guidance to provide coaches who are looking to step into education, develop their own work, courses, you name it, whatever that education uh, format takes? Your thoughts there? Well, you asked me two big ones here. You want me to talk big about ones, so. assessment stuff first? Okay. Yeah. yeah so... My movement performance assessment is just my fancy, you know, three-letter acronym because everybody's got three, four-letter acronyms for their certifications. It's just the thing we do in the field for my first session movement assessment. Um, I do provide practical, specific direction. I, I that's right, but I also understand the pain science things. I would say the biggest difference between what my assessment, how is it different than things like the FMS or NASM posture assessments and things. Um, is that, and I'm going to simplify here, but they are designed to, to look for dysfunction. And I'm not going to make a comment. I, don't, I, I still think there's an important aspect to that. I'm not going to get into the weeds of how much so. They've done a good job of looking at those things. And all I need is uh, trainers. There's plenty of trainers who swear by it and are using those things and getting great results with it. Great, keep using it. But what I realized is if I was assessing and looking for dysfunction, I was still guessing right? See what I did there with the words. And here's what I was guessing. I still don't even know if they could do a deadlift. I didn't even know if they could, you know, do a bench press or a push-up without shoulder pain, like with a lunge without knee pain. I, so to me, I wasn't, it's not that I don't, I don't like the data that those things were providing. I think there is something there, but they weren't telling me the most relevant data that I needed to know first session which is to help, first off, I want to establish a good rapport with the client. The client wants a test drive, not a driver test is what I say, right? They come in to say, hey, I want to see, I heard you're a great trainer. I want to see what it feels like to work with you. You know, show me some cool stuff. And then I go and I do this assessment. I feel like it's like a, they, I make them feel like it's a doctor visit. And they're like, well, I wanted to see what it's like to work out with you. So now you've told me I got all these things wrong with me, but I still don't know what it's like to be trained by you. Is this what the sessions are going to be like? I'm not even going to sniff a biceps curl. All I'm going to do is breathe through balloons and lay them down this way and do all this funky shit, right? Whatever your choice of correctives are. No. So it's meeting the demand that I know is going to help me close more clients and start to build trust in a relationship with clients while at the same time, not just gripping and ripping with people because that doesn't separate me from the day one trainer. That doesn't separate me from when I was living when I was 17 years old. So that's what my MPA does. It shows me what they can do today within their current ability and how to get people lifting and getting an exercise experience day one, no matter the aches and pains that they got and get them moving without pain quickly and immediately, right? So we learn all these things to address dysfunctions or whether you believe in that or not, it's rolling this and stretching that and mobilizing this and all those things have merit. I talk about where I where I think those things can go and where they should actually fit into the spectrum of things uh, in the timeline of training. But what I want to know first off is what, what can you do? 
because number one is to create a good experience for you to, to improve buy-in, right? Starting with the relationship building to give you a, a test drive of my services while showing you the value that I can provide you, right? We go, oh man, I'm working some muscles I never knew I had sort of deal. While feeling good about what I'm providing you, working on some of your weaknesses and working where, where you're at and not, and not hurting you. That's what it comes down to. So interestingly, and a lot of trainers who are the best at all the corrective stuff, they still are lost when it comes to this basic stuff, right? Because they're so scared of not adding fitness to dysfunction or not adding dysfunction that they leave out the fitness. So what I show is how to increase fitness, strength, hypertrophy, and get people moving. And I, some of this stuff, it works so friggin' fast for people. You won't, you won't believe it. It's super practical. I don't tell anybody they're broken. Right. And we go from there. And I'll tell you this to me, that actually first assessment is two things. Not only it shows you what you can do, it positions people for wins, but if we all can agree that a lot of the deficiencies, let's call them instead of dysfunctions, let's call them deficiencies right now. Lack of range of motion, lack of strength, lack of stability. Let's just call that all deficiencies, right? Maybe you don't like that term. Just don't kill my vibe right now. Just roll with me, right? The majority of those come from two things. One, being sedentary. And two, for the people who aren't sedentary, having a lack of movement variability. Now, let me clarify what I mean by movement variability. I do not mean doing new wacky shit that you see on Instagram every day. I don't mean that as movement variability. I just mean you're doing the same exercises over and over and over again in the same way. And you're probably missing certain ranges of motion that us trainers might go, well, that's normal for us. But if you're following muscle mag protocols and whatever, you know, it's very limited in what you're doing. You're probably not doing rotation. You're not doing end range this. You get, that's all I mean by movement variability. You're not using your joints to their fullest potential, right? You're not loading muscles in different directions and planes of motion. So if I just reinstate those two things, I get a non-active person active in a safe manner, and I take an active person and I improve their program, I give them a more balanced, well-rounded program, right? They're neglecting the quads, their form is horrible on rows. That could be as simple as that. And I just give them a more balanced pro. And then I put them through that for about 12 weeks in a smarter way. I help them recover better, yada, yada, yada. That takes care of, I don't have research for this, 90% of the problems that we see, right? Really. Because if you're, I would say this, if your body's deficient, usually it means your program is deficient. So before I give you a bunch of supplements, I eat corrective exercise. Why don't I just improve your diet? And that's where we skip. So I, it's simple. And sometimes it's too simple to be sexy. I provide a lot of sexy in the course, but it's super results driven. Give it then if last thing here, sorry, if after 12 weeks or so, that you still have some things that need to be addressed, that's a good time to know maybe I need some supplemental work. That gives you more assurance that the things you may have learned in a corrective course that specializes in hips or breathing or whatever, now you do some of your breakout evaluations and you go, oh, let's try this because the bigger things didn't seem to really cover it. Now, I'm not just saying just make people lift and do push-pull. It's, it's more, more in-depth than that. But it's certainly not as too specific as 
you know, some of these corrective approaches may, may provide. The example I was going to use was, you know, a lot of trainers might create a leg day program and it might look like this. You've got a squat, you have a, a lunge, you have a Romanian deadlift, bilateral, and maybe the leg press. Okay. That's way fucking better than someone who's only on the couch, but we're missing a lot of things there, right? right. We have very little single leg dimension. Sure. The lunge is a single leg, but we have more opportunity to create single leg movement, unilateral movement. Maybe it's a single leg Romanian deadlift, really good thing. But on top of that, everything is pretty much in the sagittal plane. It's all kind of forward back versus frontal plane. When people get confused by the planes, even muscle doc was talking about how he doesn't even like this language when he was presenting, but we want some lateral work as well. So I like pushing and pulling the sled around, but I'll get my clients to actually move laterally. I'll have them laterally drag it. Maybe it's lateral lunge patterns and you're just not stuck in this one plane of motion and you're not stuck in mostly bilateral work. Yes. So that's, that's a good explanation of what I mean by movement variability. Um, it just means rotating your tires essentially, right? So you're not grinding a deep groove in your joints. It doesn't mean doing new things all the time. You could do lateral movement every week and do the same types of movement. It just means you're doing more variety of loading your hips than you previously were and hamstrings and other lower extremity, you know, tissues. So yeah, we're on the same page with that. That being said, we do work with clients who have aches and pains, who have some injuries, who have inabilities to do things, who do have restrictions. There are restricted ankles. There are, you know, tight hip flexors. There are, you know, um, what do you do about those things? How much does it matter? How much does it affect and when? There are, are still a lot of questions to be asked that really do take the best approach of the biomechanics stuff, right? What if they've got rounded shoulders, right? How much of that matters? Does that change your programming? How much? These are legitimate questions, right? Um, and what do you do if someone has, and here's what's something that's interesting. We, here's a, this is super missing. We talk about how, um, you know, oh, well, pain may be a sign of compensation or dysfunction or whatever. Well, and then we'll say, well, when it, when it hurts them, just don't do the assessment or screen and uh, work around it, right? Yeah, well, of course, we'll work around it. Um, but, and then we'll say, well, like, refer out. Well, not every person who has pain is a patient. I guarantee you half the people listening to this right now who are trainers, you're supposed to be the fittest, smartest people in the gym. You deal with chronic pain. If that, if you just refer it out every time you would never work out. You know, I used to have a, an ex football player that I would ask him this every day. I would go, Gary, how you feeling today? You go, Oh, good. I go, anything hurt. He goes, everything fucking hurts. Let's work out. <laughs> I've right? heard the example before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I use that example all the time. So if, if it was just pain was this whole, you know, but I need to know how to work with that to not make it worse, right? He should feel better at the end of the session, not before. And secondly, on the other side, interestingly, even though I've not been, and I've, I've been to multiple physical therapy workshops, the guys who run Northeast seminars, the Rosettis, Bob and Ron Rosetti. I talked to Ron Rosetti who started it uh, this morning, wish me a Merry Christmas. That's basically the, the best seminars around the world for physical therapists and for veterinarians, by the way. So I would attend four or five of these conferences a year from the best rehab professionals in the world on SI joint back from Kevin Wilk um, to Mark Comerford. Um, I can go, go on. So Brian Mulligan, all these people. So I had, I've had dinner with many of these people. 
And interestingly, we have this really big cottage industry now of mobility work and joint distraction, you know, tie the band around your shoulders and hang from it and mobility this and breathe that way. And I go, you know, I never really did a lot of this stuff and none of my clients ever needed this shit. Right. And I noticed as some of the sort of barbell centric, very powerlifting oriented, Olympic lifting oriented, very lifter hard type stuff became popular. The next thing down the pipe was phone book, thick books on mobility and injury prevention, how to fix your body. Well, maybe instead of finding the latest self roll massage tool and buying your 10th massage gun um, and carrying your foam roller around and buying another book and learning the latest, you know, mobility exercise, why don't you look at your workout? Because your body shouldn't feel like shit. It shouldn't feel like you have to do all kinds of rolling yourself into a coma and activation drills just to feel semi-normal. So I still think that a lot of trainers who know a million correctives are horrible with actual good programming because if your programming was better, you wouldn't need to use any of this stuff because your programming is what's causing it. But nobody is ever evaluating their actual program. Yet they say, do the basics, you know, stick to the basics. But on their bio, it says, I'm a neuromuscular fascial stability expert. It's like, I thought you said stick to the basics. Nothing about that sounds basic to me, you know, because they're not good at the basics. We, we think we are because it's not sexy. Oh, I know how to do rows. I know how to coach deadlifts. You know, um, it's way beyond that. And you'll see that also in, in my course as well. So we see how it all comes together, how to prevent these things, how to not need a million different prep exercises to feel good in your training, how to take some of the science that we know um, about how things like lordotic curve, you know, relate to posture and pain. How much do they, how much do they matter? How much do they relate to actually doing exercises and why? And then I also provide really specific, you know, this is what I would do type things. Here's what to do. Someone's got knee issues and squats hurt them and lunges hurt them. Here's what to do to get them out of pain right now. So you impress the shit out of them on the first session. And then here's a list of exercises. You can get them stronger legs with bad knees. Uh, I know bad is not a good term, but you know what I mean, right? Painful knees. We know what you mean. Then, and then these are these few other things that they may be missing that you may want to look further into. Uh, we, we cover all that stuff, but it's very practical and not, not dogmatic. Okay. And a lot of my philosophies align with yours. It's funny. And if any other coaches listening felt this way, I've always felt that compared to the fundamentals of just basic lifting, that my knowledge base of things that I would term as correctives or mobility work was, you know, a little bit on the weaker side. And I've been exposed to uh, especially Dean Somerset, he's got so much stuff and he's here local. So I've, I've done so much of his work and I realized over time, A, I have actually picked up a fair bit, but I found that I really don't need to use an extensive array of this stuff that I would think falls under the corrective exercise umbrella because I'm more focused on just making sure that people are moving pretty well. There's good programming. Uh, you know, it's not all barbells for the type of person who probably sh shouldn't ha have most of the program with barbells, but we're appropriate. It's appropriate. But uh, I think you did a really good job of explaining that. So any thoughts on coaches who are interested in stepping outside of the trainer on the floor role as an exclusive model 
getting into an educational space in any form? Um, well, just real quick, just to say, so I'll be, we're doing this right before Christmas in 2021. So starting in 2022, I'll be teaching live courses on the MPA. So I hope to see you all there. And I do feel just to wrap this up, I actually, from a lot of trainers that I talk to, they'll say that sounds a lot like things that I'm doing. I agree with you. And I think it's like you, you're going to want to come to see a band that sings your type of, of music, right? Yep. So I think the only thing that I can take credit for is I think that you'll be happy if you're already doing that sort of stuff. Not only will it give you some good validation, but it'll thought organize it in a really refined way and also give you some new things that you'll say, this is taking what I, what I'm already doing, not only to get more confidence to do what I'm doing, but it's, it's hopefully improving upon what you're already doing. So maybe you're already doing some of these things. I guarantee you're going to get some things you haven't done before that you're, are quick and easy and, and that you'll utilize right away that already fit with what you're doing as well. You don't have to reinvent the wheel or throw up, try to throw out what you're doing as well. And by the way, just real quick, and I'll answer your question about the breaking into becoming the, the, the expert person. That's another thing that if you're a semi, even beginner trainers want specific things to do. So I provide that as well, because I, that's where I, I coach things. That's why pain science stuff really fails. It's like, well, I don't even know what to do then if I'm a beginner trainer. So I'll provide that. But for advanced trainers who have their own models, I keep that in mind as well, because I, I know how I don't like to be talked to. And when I hear someone promote their course and they say, this is the revolutionary course, you know, top to bottom, soup to nuts system, you know, to improve your training. I'm kind of like, eh, sorry. Like I'm pretty smart. I, I, I can, I'm sure I can learn a few things from you, but you're telling me that you need to do my thinking for me, that you're basically smarter than what I'm doing. Like to me, that's condescending to me. That turns me off more along the lines of here. I've had some success. I want to show you exactly what I do for you to take from it what you want, because that's what you're going to do anyway. So I think people will appreciate that approach as, as well. Um, and that's another thing. I think things like the FMS, even people like me, we might use one assessment from them or some corrective that they like, or some mobility movement, but we'll, we go, I don't like those other two tests. The hurdle step thing doesn't make any sense to me or, or whatever. Right. But the whole thing is they said that, well, these seven tests are all redundant and predicated on one another. So you need to do all seven to make it valid. Well, if I know I'm not going to do all seven, then hey, right? Me, my, I'm not like that at all. Every one of my little assessments is standalone. So you may like this one, get rid of this one, take that one and go, I'm using that tonight. They're all individual great little things to do that are based on things that you, that you can apply. Everything. Real world examples to even, even group training. Right. So and work out of the day scenarios. OK, so end of my end of end of my rant slash shameless plug. And um, so how do you is your question, how do you go from local successful trainer to becoming more recognized and sought after by other trainers as an educator? Is that kind of what you're asking me? I suppose I, I guess because I'll let you sort of maybe a bit more about the philosophy of or any particular things that you think would be wise for a coach to do if they were seeking to step outside of purely training other, you know, training people in front of them and not to say they want to get away from it. Some might and step into a space where you, you are educating other yeah, coaches. Oh, okay. Simple. I'll say two things. First off is if you're going to step out and try to educate, make sure that you're talking about things that other trainers give a shit about. Right. So, I mean, like something that you is going to be marketable enough. I mean, there's always a market for some things, right? 
But, you know, if you're really passionate about MTP joint mobility, I'm sorry, there's just not going to be a lot of, you know, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of play there, plain and simple. Right. Um, so it's got to be something that, you know, a lot of people are interested in. Uh, and if you really want to really want it to blow up and not be frustrated why nobody's listening to you. <laughs> um, and then two, you also have to pay attention to what the free market is demanding. Now you may think, oh, the majority of trainers are stupid. If you do that, you are already going to fail at doing this because you already have this condescending mindset that everybody needs to be like you, right? Well, only losers focus on how they think the world should be. Winners focus on how the world is. So you have to speak to people where they're at, right? And you do have to make some compromises. I don't mean compromise your values, but like anything in life, when you're dealing with more than one person working together for the same goal, is you have to have some compromise to what is actually going to catch people, right? So you may hate the term functional, right? But then you realize that the majority of trainers are still using that term and they resonate with that term. So in your marketing, if you want to get the most people, and by the way, if those are the people who probably most need to hear what you have to say, you need to start speaking their language. You don't need to start saying functional training is stupid because all the people that you're, that you want to get through to that you think are doing dumb stuff, they're going to immediately turn away from you because you just insulted them. So you're actually a self-fulfilling prophecy not to do. So you have to understand those things. And then from there, you, so basically what I'm telling you is you have to actually be willing to listen to what the kind of type of questions that you get. Use social media as your intel, as your game film. See what people are commonly saying. See what people are commonly criticizing other people for. See patterns in those and don't make those same mistakes, right? So if you commonly see that people want to see a little bit of evidence to, to feel confident about something, they don't like when you're dogmatic or bossy. And that when you provide things simple and practical, then just say, I'll just provide a little bit of evidence, but I'm not going to make it too sciencey and boring. By the way, I just gave you my formula, right? You know, so, you know, people want enough. So I just go, I saw some studies that have this outcome. If you want to go look it up, go look it up. You don't need me to tell you the study or the dates, right? Most people never look it up anyway. Here's what I do with it instead of telling you what the truth is. So, all you have to do, all the answers are right in front of you to be successful. If you just look at common criticisms and concerns and questions and actually utilize them, the mistakes happen is when your ego gets too damn big and you think, no, this is what I like. And then I'm going to put it out there. No, that's a performance for the performer. That's for you. It's like going to an artsy fartsy thing where you're like, what the hell is this? Like I, the performer's doing this. This isn't for me. And I'll grab on to one particular point you, you made there. It's about using the language people are using. And I'm big on this one. And I've, I've talked about this on social media a little bit. I am perfectly fine with the word tone. I don't actually use it in my media, but I don't criticize or educate or teach people who come in front of me who, I'm, who are talking to me about training. And they're a little vulnerable and they're a little nervous about the experience and I'm still brand new to them. And then all of a sudden they mention, oh, I want to get more tone. I'm not the person who goes into a lecture about how tone is not a scientific thing. Don't be that trainer. Guys, get over that bullshit. That's that's one of the stupidest things you can do. You'll immediately get that person to feel small and foolish and you've broken trust and you're not going to have this person as a client. 
I saw a pedantic rant about the phrase lean muscle on social media. And I saw this and I went, I didn't react to it. I didn't like comment. I didn't, whatever. I just looked at this and like, this, this guy doesn't get it. And I put up a post a few days later, kind of to the effect of what I'm saying. These are the words and phrases that our enthusiasts and our potential clients are using. So you can argue and be pedantic and be quote, technically scientifically right about some of this stuff, or you can actually meet people where they are. Anytime I write about the myth about women being worried about being getting bulky, 75% of the women I've ever sat in front of in 11 years as a coach have said some form of they did not want to get too muscular or too bulky. It's the language they're using. And anytime I put up this post, people love it. It goes crazy, gets shared like nuts. And one to two people always come in and start having a meltdown about the fact that they don't like the phrase bulky and how you know some women like to have muscle. It's like, okay, cool. I get that. Totally. You're missing the fucking point. We have a ton of women who either use this as an excuse or genuinely have this fear that if they work out too much or even a little bit, they're going to put on more muscle. Now, all the dudes out there are going like, I fucking wish this was a problem. This actually was a real thing. But we have a whole bunch of women and people in general who we want to get into the gym to put on more muscle. It's one of the healthiest things they could possibly do for their long-term physical and mental health. And that's the language that's out there. So guess what? I will comfortably use it. And if trainers want to argue and be pedantic over it, cool. I'll be busy trading the clients that you guys are pissing off. Nick. Yeah, yeah exactly right. I do the same thing. I'll, I'll, I'll take that money. And, and by the way, people, potential clients see that. If they see you're always arguing and you're always insulting things and you're always taking out your frustrations, it's, it's a huge turnoff to them because they just go, you just seem like a downer. I don't want to hang out with this person. So again, I think some smart trainers, academic minded scientists are human wise, some of the dumbest people going. And I know that, that I'm saying, you know, use language and I literally just insulted. I'm actually not saying they're always dumb. They have a lot of dumb. At, and here's what I mean. They, they have self. And I'm saying this is like an intervention, you know, um, is they're not self-reflective when saying, well, this is actually going to turn away the exact people that I need. And like things you just said right there. How much does that really matter that the accuracy of the term tone or whatever, who cares? See, at the end of the day, I just want you to do the exercise the way I want you to do it. Whatever gets you to do it. Now, once we get some trust and understanding five okay. months down the road, five weeks, then I can bring up something and you go, you know, you've been just want to let you know, you know, you've been talking about tone a little bit. Um, just want to let you know, that's not really a term. And the reason why I want you to know that is so I don't want you to get misled by some other workout programs or things like that. And your client will go, oh, I really appreciate that, right? Built the trust. Yeah, correct. But you have to exactly right. Um, but everybody, you know, and and also this is just bored. I just like it's it's a it's a huge turnoff. Um, so again, it's it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Meanwhile, the people who are communicating and teach, talking to people with respect, the people who are usually a lot of what other people think are full of crap, they continue to kick ass because they are an attractive part from a human side, from a people side, right? And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to the people who, who hate it, right? And it's just like, well, wow. But like I said, it's a lack of self, a lack of self-reflection because humans are who they are. They're, we're not in these controlled environments where, you know, it's like in academics where people have to listen to your shit or, um, or they're, not, they're not married to you. You know what I mean? So um, they don't have to deal with your shit and, and to hope to 
you know, be able to sleep quiet, <laughs> peace and quiet with you. They don't have to deal with your crap either. So Nick, where can people find you to get into more of your stuff? I'd like to say Google knows me, you know, Nick Tuminello. Um, I got my bands, NT loops, my initials, just search those names, you know, in, Insta is a good place. Um, Facebook, I, share, I still share a lot of my thoughts there on Facebook. And then obviously the website, um, if you don't know how to spell my name, you can go to Strength Zone Training. It's the name of my business.com. And uh, if you're following me on Instagram, if you're not, you should be. But uh, if you are, then I follow Nick. So you can find him in the search of the people I follow. So he's right there. Uh, Nick, it's great to have you on again. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I look forward to getting back into traveling into the grander fitness sphere uh, sphere and uh i'm sure i'll be seeing you at one of these events sooner or later that you're presenting at much appreciated back at you man hopefully we can uh if you're putting something together we can put something in, uh in your area because i'm definitely back on the road this year well, that was that was the plan we we had you coming in and then uh, COVID all blew that all apart back in 2020 so uh hopefully we'll be able to get revisit that whole idea yeah man let's talk about it all right cheers